As the digital global age continues the integration of computers, communities, and cultures, it also brings an unfamiliar composition for nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia to come together and work towards a collective security goal within and across these geographical boundaries. Cyber attacks or breaches of information and data security puts nations on the path of unprecedented robbery that has potential consequences of the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. These break-ins have been possible due to the lack of effective security in cyberspace, which is allowing hundreds of thousands of pages of ideas, designs, business plans, blueprints, and other forms of intellectual property taken from entities across industries without their knowledge or permission. Evaluating these thefts and its impacting economic terms will help NGIOA understand the quality and quantity of its security efforts and initiatives in cyberspace and geospace. To help evaluate the economic impact of cybersecurity and insecurity, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Aman Agarwal, a renowned economist and a senior vice chairman at Indian Institute of Finance. Welcome to Risk Roundup, Aman. Thank you for having me here. Uh, so in order to evaluate the macroeconomic effects of a cyber attack, it is necessary to first and foremost understand and evaluate how connected computers contribute to economic activity. In your assessment, how much the connected computers, internet, and the digitalization trend has contributed to nation's economic activity and impact? You see, uh, it is amazing the way technology has influenced and grown on and the way economies have uh, gone interlocked with each other and got interdependent to an extent on the technological framework, whether it is in the banking framework or it is in other areas. If you look at various cyber crimes, cyber issues which take place, the September 11 attack to the way Osama bin Laden used the US markets to finance its operations and then take away that money over six or seven uh, countries as per the details given by one of the congressmen immediately after the attack that that money flew billions of dollars flew from the u.s from one country to the other and uh, a few seconds and uh, if uh, even if it's full support from all these six seven countries in europe uh, it would take minimum of six seven months to actually investigate now that is the kind of swiftness with which the money movement takes place today because of the, the IP framework and the banking system which we have today worldwide. Uh, this does uh, this benefit and this cause this risk of terrorism and the risk which we enhance and feel every day. Uh, people uh, siphoning off money, creating hoax accounts, uh, you know, depositors being cheated at times as well. Uh, there are a number of cases in various parts of the world where banks and depositors have had income. But if we look at the positive side of it, so you see as all coin, all things have two sides like a coin, uh, the positive side has been productive as well. Uh, when we look at investments coming in from banks, financial institutions, high net worth clients, even from small individuals, 
today a small individual sitting on a hilltop uh, in a small village in a small town maybe a one two three four house village or a small township which is there in different parts of the world which includes some places even in the united states where there are small townships with only a few houses a handful of houses which actually create that whole town uh, they can invest uh, with the help of technology across borders uh, they can uh, transfer funds from one bank to the other sitting across borders uh, post uh, september 11 2000 uh, there has been restrictions to one they have been restrictions uh, especially in the us where um, if an american wants to trade on an american account he has to be present in in the united states uh, to transfer those funds but that is only for americans who are holding accounts in the united states but for others who are holding accounts across the borders people working across uh, different countries nations drawing salaries incomes uh, and so on and so forth they can actually use their fund to invest in various markets and that does influence not only in terms of stock market investments but also in terms of the real sector investments when it comes to real estate or it comes to investing in manufacturing or opening a new company all those facilitations which used to take months of approval uh, for any industrialist that before uh, happen in a few uh, minutes at a click of a button uh, the regulatory prudence has to update itself whether it is to central banks of any country with reserve bank of india or the federal reserve system they have had to update themselves to meet with this swiftness because of the it framework and i i see that there is an impounding impact of about two and a half to three percent in terms of growth of whatever has happened in the gdp in most of the emerging markets and almost in the tune of uh, half uh, 50 basis point to 100 basis points of gdp growth which has been contributed because of the it enabled uh, facilitations and especially uh, the movement of funds in the banking framework and this has been the kind of impact which uh, we can see on the gdp of various countries around the globe across the nation irrespective of whether the country is an oil exporting country or whether it is a country which is importing oil or it is a country which is actually manufacturing primary goods uh, agricultural goods or anything as a matter of fact uh, and this kind of impact is quite positive in nature yes it is positive and that is very significant so aman what do you think that which nations have benefited the most out of this you know uh, advances in the information technology and the trend of digitalization is it the emerging economies or which which nations and regions have benefited from that well it's a very very good question i think this technology has helped uh, across borders uh, there is one specific nation uh, per se which has benefited now you see when it grows uh, no movement of funds take place from one country to the other it is not uh, looking at uh, developed or developing countries it is looking at investment and growth it is in simple man's language term it is looking at return on investment rois whichever gives me roi the funds move there so irrespective of whether it is a developed country or a developing country or a far flung area in africa or in the nordic pole or iceland or or any other part of the world uh, they are not uh, these funds movements investments are no longer stagnated to a specific zone and that kind of facilitation happened with this digital age uh, the technology is there the usage of this technology is there because ultimately when you are going to use this technology you need human resource 
And as of today, the emerging markets are blessed with more acquainted human resource as against the developed world, which is falling on their human resource as of today. The older generation is not that technological savvy. The newer generation is, but there is not much of newer generation which is there in the developed part of the world, which is in fact bringing a risk to them that if everyone is going to be digitally live and they are going to be from the developing part of the world, then what's going to happen to them tomorrow? Because the GDP growth is no longer restricted to as the old. You see, we saw in the early 30s, 40s, 50s, industry uh, being a contributor, agriculture being a contributor to the GDP growth. Then came this particular factor called services sector after World War II, when the US promoted services, outsourcing, doing work, one country doing another country's work, and various organizations working like this. So services sector grew to the tune that last year, till last year, I would say till the last decade, uh, almost about 70 to 75 percent, even in certain countries, 80 percent of the GDP growth came from the services sector per se. Uh, you know, that was the kind of movement. Even in India, if we see about 65 percent of growth in GDP take, comes from services sector. India is a little different story in the sense that we had a certain rebound from almost 25, 26 percent services growth to about 65 percent. And this was primarily because large number of companies which were claiming to be under manufacturing or agriculture move themselves to services sector, claiming now that they are part of the services sector, given the benefits services sector was getting. So the tax benefits and other benefits which they were getting. So as a result, the services sector grew. But if you look at this new decade, which we are moving on, 2010 onwards, it is now the digital age. And this has been grooming post-19. 85 onwards, slowly and steadily. And in post-1995, it has had certain rebounds in the last 15 years from 1995 till almost 2010. It has matured to a level that every economy today is looking at a digital growth. Like even our prime minister in a recent visit to the United States, when the UN summit was taking place, when he went to California, he talked about digital India per se. So there are a large number of countries uh, which are looking at economy and they're growing they're boosting up on digital economy because they see that growth they see transparency they see governance so they're you know now involving the governments not only in the private sector or the industry where it is important but they involve the government's involvement in this digitalization of systems has become a rebounding effect and this is across board it doesn't mean developed or developing or a small country or a less developed country as per the UN definition or any other specific country. And I think this is equitable growth and this will actually bring all countries at a similar platform. We have had different models in the last 100 years which have tried to equate countries, look at different countries. Uh, we've had the Bretton Woods Agreement, we've had the foreign exchange regimes, we've had uh, you know, barter trade systems, we've had various systems. The UN has tried to adopt certain systems. Uh, you know, happiness indices, which have been, which is promoted by Sarkozy and requested to Professor Amrit Sen to create an happiness index to rank different countries and equate them and structure them uh, to show which one is better and performing better and being productive. I think they have been different kind of, but this digital structure is going to bring in that equity because the benefit with the digital structure is that with very little investment, uh, you know, countries, organizations, systems, individuals can think about growth, can think about doing things which they could not do before. Like, you know, if you look at this interview itself, this kind of a broadcast, it comes under 
broadcast and information segment. Almost all countries have ministries of broadcast and information which will restrict any information being telecasted on any platform coming from any country, A country to B country or C country, so as to see that there is equitable structures in their country. Now those restrictions have actually gone away. Now you are sitting in the United States and my sitting in India, you know, can have this particular thing and this can go worldwide across border borders. Uh, even a person sitting in Africa or in Iceland or in uh, certain uh, regions where there may be no access at all except for internet, no water at times, no clothes, no access to any help aid, can have access to this internet-based technology and can have access to this internet. Now this kind of digital empowerment which has taken place, which brings a level playing field, is uh, tremendous uh, and I think will change the way uh, things have moved around whether it is in the banking framework, whether it is in the government uh, structures, uh, and so on and so forth. And so in my opinion, uh, you know, this question which you asked, uh, which has dazzled a large number of countries, you know, who is on the top. So every country tries to show, oh, on the transparency index, I am on the top. On the manufacturing index, I am on the top. Uh, on the, uh, you know, women care index, I am on the top. On the health care, I am on the top. In every country today uh, tries to showcase themselves uh, with where they are on the top. Uh, this will uh, typically do away and uh, one will have to be competitive, transparent and uh, will actually bring in equity in the sense that uh, people at large would be now the focus. The people would be the central system because they have the power to turn the wheel around. And this is something which this digital framework provides. Uh, it is significant. It's, uh, you are, uh, that is uh, absolutely correct assessment. It is very transformative and it, it levels the playing field, like you said. So, uh, I mean, in cyberspace, the connected computers and the internet has changed the nature and definition of security. While no nation, its government, industries, organizations and academia seems to be prepared for the security in the cyberspace, the cyber insecurity brings each and every component of the NGIOA, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, a very complex set of challenges. Now, as an economist, what concerns you the most in this age of insecurity? I mean, this is definitely the technology, the connected computers and the digitalization and internet has leveled the playing field. But it has also brought a lot of complex challenges on the forefront. So as an economist, what worries you the most about this insecurity? Well, I think uh, it's a question of looking at this as a new dimension. It's a new growth, new systems, new, new uh, crop, which is growing and flourishing itself and spreading across borders. Now, uh, to think about controlling it, which most governments would like to do, uh, irrespective of how transparent and how open they are, whether it is India or the United States, uh, they are concerned about the cybersecurity issues and the way this influences people. We have seen in the recent past, and only about two, three years back, the way revolutions have been brought up with certain new systems being in place, some new voices being raised on the internet at certain domains where uh, there were no controls of the governments and as a result the whole government had to be turned around so we have seen those kind of things happen this has brought the turnaround before the government as to what can happen what cannot happen with these digital uh, cyber issues uh, the systems uh, to control to attack uh, have been developed by some of the private firms 
I would not like to name them in specific, but there are some of these uh, IT firms which are actually can actually track down each individual to the level where is he moving, where is he not moving, despite the fact whether he is on the phone or not. I was invited recently, only about a week, 10 days back, to deliver uh, at the annual general meeting of the investigators. Uh, they are an organization called CII, which is based out of the United States, uh, which actually is an association of investigators and, and they look. And they were also talking about uh, the way cyber has influenced their structure today, uh, phone without being connected on the Wi-Fi network can actually be hacked and they one could be actually listening to and even viewing through the cameras what is happening in the room despite no access of internet. And some of these things have happened in the US, in the UK and others with some very strategic position holders uh, where their phones have been trapped. Now this is where digital age has led to, this is where cybersecurity has led to. But we need to be, I think, honest to ourselves and let it grow. Uh, you know, if it lets it grow, it will grow in itself, a system where they're there. And to think that we do not have the systems to track it, we do have the systems to track it. We have the systems to notify, the system to see, to check. But do we do, do not, as of today, have this technology to control it? And I think uh, it is always good, as we say in India, uh, you know, to let things grow by themselves and not be under control. Uh, if we let them grow and groom up, they will develop their own check mechanisms as a human body grows from a small child to a full human being it develops its own check mechanisms so we need to let it grow and grow up uh, certain countries who have these concerns in cyber security uh, they are well uh, aware of some of these concerns it is a question of uh, taking steps and many of these governments do not take steps as we saw the crisis of the financial meltdown in 2008 if I, I was recalling uh, teaching my course in derivatives recently, the news item which came in 2006, January 2006, where the SEC of the US, the SEC of UK, and uh, one more international, Canadian SEC, all the three heads joined together and they knew that the credit derivatives have grown from 0.5 uh, million dollars worth of trade to almost 2.6, uh, you know, sorry, 0.5 trillion dollars worth of trade to about 2.6 trillion dollars worth of credit derivatives being sold in the span of four years. They knew the risk. They knew what they were enhancing upon, but they kept quiet for almost two years. Now, when they kept quiet on such an issue, it had to bubble burst out. And they did bubble burst out. As a result, even today, the US economy is not able to come out of that bubble burst which has taken place or the repercussions thereupon. They've been able to put things under control, but they've still not been able to come out of the aftermath of that the burst of financial meltdown which took place arising from some of the derivative based instruments wrongly being used. Now, this is where uh, if the governments or the regulators sit upon information and do not take a proactive role, technology is moving so fast that that period which was two years and from 2006 to 2008 is only a matter of a month today. So it is speeding up. So they need to speed up and take proactive actions instead of controlling it to bring checks and balances in my opinion, is a more appropriate manner as we talk in democratic setups. Controlling is more of an autocratic structure. We want to control, put everything under our thumb. That is not the way democracies work. In a democratic setup, we need to create inhabitable, uh, natural, organically grown systems which actually have their own control mechanisms uh, in place and then we only need to monitor it, I think. So this monitoring and bringing in this check mechanism as a child grows and a mother does, 
uh, you know, monitor the child and sees and tells the child what is right and what is wrong needs to be there and the governments need to play that role more actively than what they have done in the past. Now, continuing on the same point, uh, to discuss about how an individual entity has an impact over nation's, you know, overall economy. So apart from the implications for individual entities across nations, its industries, organizations and academia, cyber attacks seem to impact the nation's overall economy like you just, you know, discussed. So can you share your insight and explain for the benefits of our, of our global viewers on how cyber attack could impact overall nation's economy, even if that attack happens on an individual entity like you were just discussing? You see, uh, Jayashree, today, uh, uh, even a single individual uh, with the digital age can make an impact. Uh, this was the case even before, but earlier he had to create a cloud, he had to create a group, he had to create a movement like Mahatma Gandhi did, like Nelson Mandela did. A lot of other people have tried to revolutionize in their own ages, in their own ways. Uh, today, an uh, individual can actually stand up and create a movement, create a big ripple in the social, uh, which we look at the world economic system. Uh, this can ripple can actually be for the benefit of the people. This can be for the disbenefit of the people as well. So the, the ripple effect is both in a terroristic way or in a, in a good way. Now, it's a question of trying. This is where the governments need to take a new role and to find out whether this movement which is taking place is in the positive direction or is it in the negative direction? Like you see, as I was mentioning, continuing from previous point, I have met almost about five or six governors of central banks in Europe post this 2008 crisis, the financial meltdown which took place. Now they are still adopting the techniques, technique of sitting over the problem and get, letting the system recover by itself. Now this is a good way of doing it. But given the magnitude of financial transactions which take place, to the tune of almost about $5 trillion worth of transactions take place on a daily basis worldwide, these are through official channels. Now, given the magnitude of such transactions which are taking place on a daily basis, you cannot adopt a technology or a strategy which central bankers or governors of central banks or boards of central banks adopted 25, 30 years back to resolve a problem which was there in the economy, a financial meltdown of similar nature which has happened in the past on SNL crisis or other crises which took place in other parts of the world. But this technology will not work. You will have to take a proactive role. But we, to, my, to my surprise, all these central bankers have been sitting over these NPAs which have been created, trying to see. Now this itself is a risk to the people at large because any which is kept in the banks and financial institutions, that's going to be depleted away if NPAs keep rising and they are not being resolved. Financial institutions which are not performing well are allowed and given patronage to still function and do their. Now this is the biggest risk today. Someone who attacks, someone who takes away some money, hacks into a system is one component. It can only do some damage. Here, in the official system, the official framework, banks and financial institutions and the central bankers are actually eating on people's money, which is the biggest risk. And now this is where, as I said, with technology and funds moving from one across the borders, NPAs being created one after the other. How are these NPAs being created? It needs to be investigated. Stress tests need to be done and made public. 
I remember way back in the 80s when Chile was flushed with similar problems where there was a crisis in the economy and the risk transfer mechanism which was supposed to work, which the American system has been proposing, IMF has been proposing, they actually completely outsourced. They all gave their own companies, disowned their companies and sold those to foreign firms. And despite that risk transfer mechanism, it did not work because all those companies clubbed together and came to the Chilean government and the central bank and said, you don't bail us out, we move out. You're a small share in our whole total pie. So it doesn't make a difference to our business what will happen. But this total share means 95% of the total banking and financial industry in Chile. And they could not afford, so they had to bail them out. But Chilean government made it mandatory for all banks show their asset liability positions in the newspapers every day. I don't know if it is still existing, but from 1980s, it did happen and they did start projecting. Now, stress test has to be done. You know, even in the US, which is considered to be quite open, transparent banking framework, which is there uh, quite, everyone looks at it as a model banking system. Uh, the Federal Reserve Bank has not been able to introduce the stress test and make it public for the last seven years. They have been requesting initially the banks and financial institutes after the Lehman Brothers, but that information for all banks is not coming out in public. What are the stress test results? Now, and this is not only with the US, even in Indian government, they have done it and they found their risk. The RBI governor has been talking about the NPA position, the risk it poses. In Europe, they're doing it, but these results are not coming out. If it doesn't come out in public, you're actually playing with people's money. So in my opinion today, the cyber security for the banking framework brings it even more risk you've seen in 2008 till 2012 or so as an impact on the economy, world economy, which we're still not able to recover. We will see even worse happen tomorrow. Because of cyber and digital age, money gets transferred at a paper property. And this is where NPS get created because these some who defraud and do not pay their loans who do not uh, honor their commitments are the ones who are taking away the money from a bank to the other and they're keeping it there. And wherever this money goes, that country is happy. You see, I spoke with the governor, the board governor of Bank of Finland, and a lot of czar money was coming in. Their hotels were being owned, almost all hotel chains were being owned by Russians and others. And this is just after what happened in Iceland almost over five, six years back. Our lunch meeting which I had with her and she also said that oh, we are okay, we are fine. I said, are you not concerned that all your hotels, all your banks, all your financial institutions are being owned by Russians or some of the other uh, large tycoons around the world? She says, no, it's fine because money was coming in. So when money comes into your account, you are happy always. It's only a question of worry when it goes out of your account. Right. And this is where large economies face a problem. We saw in case of Thailand a couple of years back, almost a decade back, this girl who became the Prime Minister, her father, who was an industrialist who became the Prime Minister of, of Thailand, defrauded this country, flew over from uh, Thailand, going to Finland and formed an asylum in Finland. We do not know where is he now, but almost about eight, ten planes filled with large containers went with him. That was all a huge wealth of Thailand which flew off. Now, there are restrictions. It you to you need it in the past. Today you don't need to do that. With cyber systems in place, you can actually at a click of a button transfer money from one bank to the other and to the third to the fourth. And it will be impossible for any government or any central bank to actually even try and trace that money uh, to where has it landed up finally uh, in a given proximity. And by the time they're even able to trace it, 
you know that money would have gone somewhere else yes. and settled it there. Yes. So you know this is the way. People's money. And ultimately, the GDPs would be at risk of various countries. And I think this is some of the biggest challenge, uh, which risks people's money in the banking framework. It needs to be attended both the governments and the and the central banking systems. Right, right. No, I think you're right, Aman. So, uh, while the cost of cyber crime and cyber espionage is in the headline across nations, the focus is its impact on ideas, innovation, trade technology and competitiveness. We, you just discussed a lot about uh, the transfer of the money and how easy it is for you know uh, anyone to be able to do that now. But now, its impact on ideas, innovation, trade, technology and competitiveness is something that is at the heart of this discussion uh, because answering this question will help us put the cybersecurity and insecurity problem in its strategic content because people normally don't have a habit of thinking strategically. Whatever is happening right now, what is the impact going to be in the coming years? Like if if some of your designs are you know stolen, some plans are stolen, some ideas are stolen, how is it going to impact? The money is stolen right now. That we can see. That we can understand the impact. But if the ideas and plans are stolen, what is the impact going to be strategically that not many people are thinking currently? So does cyber espionage and crime have the potential to slow the pace of innovation, distort trade, create job loss and impact competitiveness in the digital global age for you know nations which they are not thinking about it currently? What, what are your thoughts on that? You see, uh, it's an interesting chicken and egg uh, situation. Uh, you know, uh, innovation actually comes with some kind of threat. When you have a need for survival, you know, uh, whether we look at pharmaceutical industry or automobile industry or some other industry per se, uh, you know, uh, innovations have taken place only a threat to their current existing technology. If there was no threat, they continue to sell the same technology year in year uh, because they're making money out of the technology. So it didn't make much difference. So there has to be some kind of a threat, uh, you know, which brings in that need for survival, uh, which brings in the innovation which takes place. So that that's where the innovation. When we come to competition, we always talk about in terms of the healthiness of the competition and the way it helps the consumer, the way it helps the industry, the government, and so on and so forth. But this competition is one of the prime reasons for all kind of espionage which takes place, all kind of thefts, all kind of you know stealing of information which takes place, or or data, or or you know ideas and so on and so forth, which actually takes place worldwide. Large number of intelligence agencies actually uh, put in, uh, in a lot of investment in trying to get this information out. Also, they even empower some of these people who are in this illegal activity and trade across the borders. And this is not restricted to A country or B country. It happens across board in almost all countries. Wherever see, they see the threat, they would like to do that. Now, given the fact I was told uh, by a professor in Colombia, he is unfortunately no more about her back here. He died, and he was he was telling me that one of his students uh, works for a U.S. intelligence agency, sitting out of Greece, and uh, because privacy norms don't allow them to do that information there. And this professor said he took out information. He was able to give me information from the age of 16 when he started using credit cards and banks 
and he had all the information from the age of 16 till today, complete financial information on him. That's but imagine the, the professor said he does not even remember what did he spend on, where did he spend and what did he do. But this person was able to pull out all that information on him and show it to him in person. Now, when this kind of a thing from historical structures, from safe banking, uh, institutional, not only banking, any kind of, whether it is insurance institutions, whether it is housing institutions, you know, if the, and other institutions, uh, police and others, when this information can be taken out, you know, so any idea actually can be taken out. But who are the ones who are flourishing these? It is people like you and me who out of competition or threat or not wanting to innovate, actually go about doing it. It is governments who are actually sponsoring some of these agencies to go about, find out, give them intel on some of these. To do this intel is where they go about innovating and developing technology and trying to do things. And this is what actually brings in this espionage and stealing and cybersecurity. Now, please understand, we live in a completely open world today with telephones, with IT as a mainframe. You know, today uh, to have a telephone and have an IT uh, internet connection on your telephone is a very basic requirement. Uh, a very commoner person, a uh, very lower middle class, or you know, very, a street person actually, as I would say, uh, has access to some of this technology. And with smart cities, which is the next framework for most governments around the cross boards, I think in India it is a big thing which is coming up as a smart city where they're wanting to have complete Wi Fi based cities. In the US, they have done that. I remember flying JetBlue where they had, um, you know, Wi-Fi in the plane as well. That is the only airline which I could know which has Wi-Fi in the plane, which is amazing. But what does that do? That puts me in public domain. And this is something which is there. I was told Apple on an Apple uh, mobile phone, any information you put is stored by them somewhere else. Now, they have not taken my permission to do so. But, you know, they are doing that. So I can retrieve that information even if I delete till a month or so. Now, when they do this, they're actually extracting all information from me and putting it on some public domain, some cloud somewhere. And that cloud can be hacked by anyone at any time, anywhere. And we have had cases of celebrities putting their personal images and videos, which have happened to leak, go out of the system uh, in some form or the other, which is there. You know, and so today we are in a public domain. Or whatever we may do in our bedrooms, in our offices, in our safes, uh, if there is an IT connectivity, you have it is in public domain. So, given that risk in nature, we need to work accordingly. We need to be more transparent, we need to be truthful to ourselves, and we need to accept the fact that yes, whatever is happening, whatever is being discussed, is going to go out. No, the insider trading has become very little relevant today. Uh, then what can happen with this technological yes. uh, This does pose a challenge, a risk, and stress system. Similarly, i like to give another example where I met uh, another industrialist here in India. He was hired by a large pharmaceutical company amongst the top five companies in India. And uh, this pharmaceutical company wanted the cameras on the mobiles of the employees to be restricted because they would be research labs. So all those who entered that door, the cameras will stop functioning. When they move out, the cameras will start functioning. So they installed some kind of a software, which even if you do a manufacturing reset, will never go away. Even if an outsider tries to install a software on that again, it will never go away. So that has been imprinted in the, the main system chip. 
which is there in the mobile. Now with this, he told that actually he can open up the camera or the voice or anything and call anyone and get any information out of the mobile of that employee point of time during the day. Now, you know, you are creating the systems, corporates are creating the systems and now they need these systems to be created as a security check for themselves. But this has become a problem because tomorrow you can actually have a high rising executive or a researcher's research being actually being taken away for a few hundred million, a few hundred thousand dollars, which someone may want to do or influence even a national security. You see, in, in the interest of public as the government's work, they can actually ask any company to give any information on any individual and the government, uh, when it's asking, whether it's in India or in any other part of the world, whether it's a democracy or autocracy, the individual or that organization would have no option but to provide that. So you have put your life in the hands of the public at large at any display. And so, you know, you are, and if you want to work with that company, you have no option but to get that thing installed. Uh, to work with that company. So you very well uh, knowingly put yourself uh, to that risk. You know, so if you want to get away, you get away from internet, you get away from the phones, uh, you get away from everything else. And that's the only way uh, to, to come up. But even there, you have satellites like the INSAT uh, 3D, which, which is there from India, where even NASA has a tech, the US space research has a tech. This particular can scan five meters by five meters and project it. Now, this is the kind of technology which was launched almost 15 years back by India, 1997-98, where they launched this technology inside satellite. We can actually scan five meters by five meters. Technology has changed today. It may have even enhanced. So even if you do not have a mobile phone or something, they can actually peep into your room and actually scan you out of what you are doing. So today we must see and think about the fact and act in accordance with the fact that we are living in a village economy, sitting under a shed of a tree where everything is visible, yes. everything is known to the other party. And yes. this is where if we work with that mindset, I think then we will be able to control because as in, in the old uh, Indian epics, they say that, you know, a, a, a bow which goes out, an arrow which goes out of a bow cannot return. Words which are spoken out of mouth cannot be returned back there, yes. it's spoken. So or true. not well spoken. So we need to go back to the old structures. And I, I would say that this book, which I always consider uh, the Chanakya's uh, Artha Shastra, the Kautalya Shastra, where I gave him the notable structure, calling him not Adam Smith, because his book even functions today, is a very relevant text which talks about everyone's responsibility, government's responsibility, citizens' responsibility. It even tells the citizen that you must secure your wealth from A, B, and C category people. And this is where he goes about and saying. So some of these scriptures in the old, uh, not only in India, but in other parts of the world as well, have actually well said some of these very basic things. We have actually gone too advanced and forgot our basics. So if you remember some of these basics, I think the security issue would automatically disseminate all. Yes. Uh, and we will be out of this threat of uh, cyber security or any other kind of a security risk. But if you do not understand, it will be important. Yes, when that personal responsibility and accountability comes, a lot will be different. You are right. And uh, I think uh, uh, there is wisdom in that. And uh, the necessity right now 
because of the kind of challenges we face is that we all have to be responsible we all have to be informed of the you know risk facing us and we all have to be accountable for our own actions and decisions so that uh, there is just no other way but let me ask you aman about this we talk about cyber crimes and you know uh, is there a framework to provide a cost estimate of the impact of cyber attacks is there one that is being used right now no i i don't think we do have accounting systems which does talk about some of these things we have had professors and researchers work out certain models to calibrate but please understand that uh, uh, in every economy there is an informal economy which exists like in india we have a parallel economy which is almost as strong as normal economy so if we are having a gdp growth rate of about 7.5% the effective gdp growth rate in india is anywhere percent because of the informal economy india the informal economy comes from people not declaring incomes black money being generated but not from illegal activities which take place but in large number of other countries maybe like italy or other parts of the world as well the informal economy comes from trade of uh, you know ammunitions from drugs from uh, women uh, flesh trade so you know these are things which actually fuel the parallel economy now when cyber security threats cyber doesn't see legal or illegal it only sees what it wants to do and they want to siphon off they want to hurt they want to give out information uh, or you know want to steal an idea which is taking place or they want to destroy a group which is there it does not uh, you know whether it is a legal structure or a legal framework structure so given that uh, i think the magnitude with which the cyber security poses a threat to the world economy is the to the tune of almost about 60% of the gdp flow can be influenced both formally and informally and if you look at the informal economy where large number of developing countries actually exist in informal economies forget developed even developed countries like if you large part of their growth is coming from the informal sector not from the formal sector so we have some of these components will come in given that uh, we can see an impact to the tune of the total world gdp uh, getting impacted to the tune of about 75% if the security threats are not brought under a scanner as i said before they need to be scanned they need to be checked upon uh, you know then we we need to see that they are being made accountable but to think about controlling them is is a misnomer today uh, with the id framework but if there is no framework how do nations calculate the cost of cyber security attacks i mean cyber security challenges or uh, cyber attacks or cyber uh, insecurity i would rather say how do they calculate it if there is no <laughs> common framework you see uh, it is very difficult like you talked about an idea being stolen under cyber security now what is the value of that idea is very difficult to calculate valuation itself when we look at mergers and acquisitions when we look at derivative pricing valuation itself is a very tricky issue and becomes very difficult to go about valuing an asset for you some asset may be worth millions but for someone else that asset may be worth few pence now this is where the valuations become difficult and that's why accounting becomes quite difficult when we try to go about valuing that particular asset per se this guy remember uh, in financial thing itself when alan greenspan was about to retire uh, one of the congressmen said that if alan greenspan dies tomorrow we will have to bring him out of the grave and put him on the chair you know despite the fact that the us banking system is so independent it's one of the most independent banking systems in the world 
have grown from the ground to the top, and not to the other way around, which happens in most countries. Despite that, it had become so much attached to one man called Adam Greenspan that they thought that the economy will completely go off the hook. There a congressman sitting in the in the parliament thought it is impossible to see a system which exists without Adam Greenspan. Now this is where the dependencies, the structures come into play. It is very difficult. He values it that way, but not everyone else. You may not consider it. Things have happened. Things have been under control. The further governors which have come in place have done an excellent job. It's not that they have not been able to perform. Initially, they were the hitch of their performance, but it is different. So to talk about that accountability component is a very difficult task to go about doing it. What we can only estimate is the through statistical techniques, uh, what is the risk we are subjected to uh, here? And the risk is almost to the tune of about 75 to 85% uh, of risk, uh, which we are there. If we talk in terms of movement, we are looking at movement number three, which we are subjected to, um, you know, as total GDP growth, which can be there. Can we restrict it? Yes, we can restrict it. Uh, as I said, governments and organizations need to take a more proactive role. They need to be active in terms of what they're doing, what they're actually providing day to day within the next 10 days that is out of technology, a new laptop is coming. So there is so much of innovation, so much of things happening in the market. So to think about the fact that you can control this, it is very difficult because that value actually is depleting off. Something which is valued at a billion dollars, maybe another few days down the line, maybe valued at only half a million, you know, billion dollars. So, you know, it will go down further very fast. So this depletion of value is so fast today uh, that to estimate cost and look at it and in government frameworks where they look at authorizations and systems, it has to be at different levels. It will take months to go about actually assessing the cost. And by that time, the total value of that particular thing is almost negligible. So, you know, information uh, has the value at that stage and not much later. So we need to only, you know, do a filter, you know, like we have baskets to, to find in our grains in India to when we make uh, the Indian bread. Similarly, you need filters to go about seeing that not much impact happens to the people at large. Like I gave this information of NPS, which is there. Everyone is well aware of that. You know, even the common man today knows about this graving problem of NPS. But even then, the governments and central bankers are not attending to it. If they don't attend to it, this will be a biggest next line of attack which will be there for the financial world. Now, this is where I think we need to act on information, and that can only prevent us from this kind of a debacle or security risk. Uh, to think about assessing, I think it will be very difficult. Right. So, from what I hear is that there is no effective way to measure the strategic, you know, uh, security challenges in, we cannot value it put a proper value to that. There is no effective framework for that. And there is also no effective framework to uh, calculate the cost of cyber attacks from what I'm hearing right now. So, and, and of course, I mean, the, my next question was going to be that if there is a framework, then are nations having a common, you know, united approach to work, you know, use that, you know, methodology or framework to estimate the cost, but it seems like, you know, we are far from that uh, based on the information that you are providing us. Correct. No, the, the, the intelligence or the governments are not looking at it. They're talking about it, but there is not sufficient steps which are being taken. Like climate change itself, you know, 
by the way climate is impacting today despite the fact that various governments have made commitments i remember when i was giving a, a talk at the swedish parliament as well as in gothenburg uh, at global forum uh, there was talk about and the government had taken judicious decisions way back in 1980 but despite the fact that they had taken judicious decisions to reduce the nuclear component reducing uh, of uh, you know resources as part of the energy mix despite that about 25 years since the parliament giving a net uh, go ahead with it they did not implement it till almost 2000 uh, you know 7 or 8 so almost for about 25 years they did not do so and they have not even done today there are governments which are taking initiatives but it is you know despite their rules it doesn't take place so even if the consensus comes up all these agencies work so independently that we would not see that uh, coming forth the only thing which can come see forth which are happening is that we are trying to impound our growth to see that we have more growth we have more business uh, more uh, revenue generation so even if there is a small fall we can actually be comfortable that cushion of growth of uh, income is going to provide us a sufficient buffer to take care of any losses which may happen because of the cyber security siphonage or information or patents or or other things which take place uh, we can actually do away with the growth of income which may have and to keep renewing ourselves to be you know changing so once we are changing then there is no question of anyone actually copying us so the technology when it is new it becomes difficult for some for someone to keep pace anyone who is doing siphonage or stealing will steal once will steal twice will steal thrice will not keep stealing every time so if you are upgrading yourself you know waiting creating new ideas getting new technologies getting new new framework you will not see that happen in your course which is going to be there which will stop you from growing but that makes life of a consumer uh, little difficult because uh, human mind and human structure doesn't change with the same speed as technology does today and this poses a human uh, problem so as i said we need to go back to the old vedic style which is uh, living under the shade of a tree and thinking in way you know meditating and thinking what should be done uh, and uh, living in peace and letting you know live and live is one thing which we must follow as a philosophy for that will be something <laughs> uh, that will be something right yes. yes that is the way to do some of these crimes where we are able to create opportunities for people we are able to bless them with right kind of information because you see this is always been and even today has been a generation an engine for growth but if not used properly becomes an engine for devastation because they would like to earn as much as possible in a very short span of time unlike an elderly person and this is where we do not analyze them we do not put them to to appropriate resources usage and structures uh, they would create a havoc for the the economic systems and they would be a civil disorder which would be beyond control and this is where this i think in my opinion the cyber security this force comes in but if you are able to meditate put that channelize that particular energy in the right direction we should be able to automatically you know when one he thinks oh what i am doing is not right when his conscious comes over and says no this is not a good thing to do automatically uh, you know things will automatically fall yeah, but raman to reach that stage to reach that stage where you are able to take uh, differentiate between right and wrong to take the right decision it's a big cultural change and it's not easy to 
get there because there are few people who would have that conscience which you are talking about which you would you know want to do the right thing for the right causes and take the right decisions but most of the people they work on incentives like you know okay what am i going to get out of this if i do this you know how will i how will my if i do this thing right how will it benefit me financially so they all live by incentives and for to expect that you know humanity or humans right now you know all across nations would you know do the right thing for the right you know purpose or to save this universe it's probably uh, you know <laughs> no i think if we are able to spend more time with oneself yes and try and understand oneself uh, that will bring a lot of peace uh, every one of us uh, largely uh, at every age is too busy trying to please the other and be in company with this instead of trying to understand oneself i think if you are able to and this is where meditation or yoga or some of the other own ancient techniques adopted by various countries around the globe uh, helps one understand oneself so if one is able to understand oneself and spend time with oneself you know once spend time with everyone around uh, but doesn't spend time with oneself so if one spend time with oneself i think he will bring uh, more peace and will be able to take more No, of course, no doubt about that, Aman. But let me ask you this uh, question that I think troubles many decision makers, uh, especially you know economists all across nations, is that there are many different theoretical, experimental, and qualitative research frameworks that are applied to understand the impact of cyber attacks across nations. There also have been numerous studies that have attempted to place a value on the cost of cyber attacks. to the national or global economy but due to the lack of transparency which you have been you know talking about a lot in uh, for you know quite some time is that lack of transparency in information sharing as well as other statistical problems estimates are not credible and reliable so even if there is a framework because the estimates are not reliable because there is not enough transparency uh, is there a way to calculate the cost of cyber security and its uh, insecurity globally and nationally because let's say you know there are some organizations that are hacked and uh, they will you know not share they don't want to share the information because they are you know concerned that by sharing the information if it's a public company then their stock price will go down and then they will have you know some legal liabilities and lot more complex challenges will follow so wherever possible organizations don't want to share the information or if they share they don't share very accurately so without having a very accurate information even if you have a framework which we don't have an effective one right now how do we measure you know things if uh, you know in a more effective manner or more reliable more credible manner how do we do that because it's all a numbers game and unless you have if whatever information you are putting in the model if you don't have that you know information correct that all the results that are coming out of that they are not going to be you know credible no so, i'm happy that you asked this because you had the risk group so you understand the very fact that all models um, whether uh, they are financial models or theoretical models or manufacturing or any kind of a model or any kind of an architecture which is created by any organization whether it is meant for them or a generic model which has been taken up by it from researchers actually works on this concept of risk assessment 
And risk, uh, you know, as you know very well, is perception based. Uh, you know, it is uh, we convert perception into bias and bias. We can convert into different components and try and uh, calibrate a risk per se, and then we subject that risk to our you know, asset which we may lose tomorrow. Now, you know, this risk perception-based system itself is a perception. So what I perceive is what I calibrate in that risk. What I do not perceive is not what I calibrate in that risk. And, uh, you know, this is where uh, the, the whole calibration, the calculations do give us an estimate, do give us structures uh, and help us account and create systems. But they are not foolproof because this is particular tension. Uh, you know, uh, you perceive better because you understand the topic better. I perceive less better because I don't understand the topic so well. And this is where the perception-based risk systems uh, are creating this valley which you mentioned uh, about this discord between uh, you know what happens and what is being calibrated. Now, you know, it is it is going to be it is human judgment. Uh, it has to be judgmentally based. You know, uh, I remember I was told by my father that Ford, Henry Ford, used to take a decision uh, to invest in a company on a toss of a coin. You know, this was a piece of information which was given to me, so I was I was amazed as a small child to think that oh, look, such a big industrialist, his value judgment was so well that you know he would uh, take a decision whether to invest in a project A or B or C or D, uh, you know, just on a toss of a coin. Uh, you know, it was surprising, uh, unless even then we saw in movies that there may be some special coins with the same kind of a head or tails and so, you know, decisions. It was not the case. He was right. The additional information were that all projects, so whether he chose A, B or C or D, they would ultimately lead to similar high returns. So naturally, it was just a question of choosing which path to go, where all paths are leading us to the right direction. So, you know, it ultimately comes down uh, to value judgment. Uh, there is no hard and fast rule, like in a human life when two people, uh, a man and a woman comes and starts living together, uh, there is no structure, there is no set pattern, no set rules, which will decipher how will their life actually generally when and how should they go ahead for actually, uh, you know, harmonious and comfortable life. Similarly, it is their value judgment, it is their adjustments. It is a question of understanding, recreating, rebuilding, understanding and so on and so forth. And this is what we need to try and understand and do uh, and we need to rebuild. And that is the only way we can do about uh, The all models, as I said, being based on risk perceptions is completely based on perceptions. Uh, you know, to, and to my students at times, I tell them that if I live on the, you know, the 80th floor, uh, which is not there so far in India, maybe in Mumbai, but not in other parts of the countries, uh, you, you and I have a, uh, I don't have, but if I have a night walking day, you know, I like to leave my balcony open, I can actually trip off my balcony and it's not risk. Only when I perceive that risk, that's when I calibrate it and that's when I count for it. Now, this is where... Uh, the difference between perceived risk and non-perceived risk is yes. in one same case if i look down the balcony and then fall and die that's where a risk is perceived but in the other case it is not and this is where all models theoretically suffer from this particular inherent perception based uh, valuation so it's more i feel a judgmental uh, system which works which sees uh, nothing succeeds like success so the
but uh, but I mean, you know that some decision makers have an ability you know to evaluate things and you know come to decisions the way you mentioned but a lot of decision makers their decisions are driven by numbers pure numbers so if if they have an understanding that by not investing in getting proper security technology and by you know not securing their initiatives or efforts in the cyberspace there how much impact they have not only in cyberspace but also how their critical infrastructure is impacted and what is going to be the you know cost impact of that if they don't have the actual numbers then they don't come to the right decisions so this is like chicken and egg situation if you your decisions based on like what kind of investments needs to be there what kind of security investments needs to be there how much they need to invest you know a lot of decision makers are kind of delaying that okay you know our liabilities uh, we will just buy you know insurance policy our liabilities only so much so why to invest so much more into acquiring technologies that are changing so rapidly for security you know so they are kind of putting security on the you know uh, back side so for those you know kind of decision makers it's important that we have these numbers that okay this is going to be the impact of you know your decisions of not investing in security and if you don't invest in security technologies then you know whatever breaches that you go through will have overall impact on not only your business but your industry and your nation and thereby you know global economy because everything is interconnected so it is i'm looking for something that can be used effectively to explain this decision makers that no matter how small or insignificant your you know decision or your security vulnerability may look to you but in the overall you know bigger picture it plays a big role and its security is only as good as you know the weakest <laughs> chain in the link so we have to make sure that we don't have any weak you know links in the security chain because everything is connected now so how do we address this kind of challenges aman just just to you know i quote three stories here interesting story which i will call uh one from uh, you know I, i was while studying in colombia we had someone from one of the investment bankers uh, one of the leading investment banks in the us even today who had come to address us uh, at the business school and he in a 3 hour presentation he presented almost about 60 slides on how he calibrates and evaluates the markets and different models and so on and so forth and only in the last slide before his closure before his conclusion he gave a slide where he talked about value judgment Where he says I base it on my experience and value judgment which I had and my my understanding of the market and so on and so forth. That was the only one slide. And after that we had a tea session. So you know I did not get a chance to ask him this question there. But then I asked him later as to you know please tell me what proportion of your decision is based on value judgment and what proportion of your decision is based on which is given by various uh, you know subdivision under you. which give you information analyzing it using statistical techniques using bloomberg data and others and give you that intel on speeches and calculations he says 97% of my decisions are based on my research and only 3 to 4% are based on the intel which i get so i find you my value uh, based on the information i get from the 
whereas this presentation 99% of the presentation was all on the techniques which were taught to us at the the university so you know, given that particular factor value judgment becomes important similarly you might remember in the united states there are about seven very rich people uh, who actually had uh, their total wealth was uh, much more than the gdps of large number of nations whole world gdp gdp also they were huge chunk all those seven people had the, the finances had the resources had the know how had the intel uh, to go about getting information assessing it and went to do that job for them but today none of those seven people are there you know as some story comes up two landed up in prison uh, two became uh, you know um, man people with insane mind uh, you know two people one or two people are not to be found and so and so forth and one of two of them died and one of them is not to be found you know and their total wealth which was more than the total large chunk of the total world's wealth seems to have disappeared now this information coming out that these seven people hold so much of wealth what a risk for large number of nations so we need to understand that they would never calibrate the risk which various nations would bring to them seeing them as a threat to those nations they would never calibrate that particular thing in their own models no one would look at the markets and calibrate those now so things have changed over time if you look at the s&p index itself which is based on the 50 companies if that those 50 companies which they have stuck on to are not the same 50 countries in the last 50 years itself only about 10% of them remain to be the same the balance 90% have changed so the yes, value judgment there are a lot of different you're right you're right one last yes you know, one more i was when i was working in the world bank in dc a colleague from um, in the same department the fsd department who was working on insurance and he wanted to sell the insurance products medical insurance products and housing insurance products to india in india and he came to me and he said uh, you know i am unable to understand that we have been discussing with the government and with the people agencies for last uh, you know one and a half year and they are not wanting to buy this product it has been very successful in a b c d countries why is india not wanting to buy i said you see please understand what is the cost of insurance to me and what is the cost if i get ill most people feel i can go to a next door doctor pay a few hundred rupees whereas the cost of an insurance is thousands of rupees to cover so why should i buy a cover and even that doctor next living next door to me will not value that insurance i'll have to go miles and miles to a hospital which will value that insurance product now it is an inconvenient product which is not physically practically implementable now you know then he could understand that you know why is the government or even agencies or hospitals not wanting to take their product which has been successful in smaller countries where they have introduced it uh, as against a country like india which is homogeneously spread all over the country unlike even china which is as large as india but they spread on the corners they are not homogeneously spread india is homogeneously spread and even today 75% 70 to 75% of population of india lives in villages is agrarian in nature and there for them to spend out and buy an insurance product for something which they see no relevance but they don't see oh my house will not fall it has not fallen in last 50 years why will it fall this year to think about that kind of an insurance structure you know is is debatable then most of them depend 
So they don't go to banks and financial institutions to finance, unlike some of the developed countries in Europe and in the US or the Americas, where they most of the financing of all housing, building, and offices, everything is actually uh, financed, is taken on loan. As a result, to reduce their risk, they take an insurance policy, uh, you know, which is made mandatory at times. Like in a car insurance, you buy a car, you have to buy a car insurance policy. It is not an option. Similar is the case with large number because they are financing these operations. In developing countries like India, where they are not financing a single penny, he says, why should I spend even this extra bit to go about insuring myself for some risk which I don't even perceive to happen? So this no, is I, where I, the value is. I understand. As far as what you are talking about insurance, I think the insurance model will have to change in the coming, you know, uh, months and years because a uh, lot of insurance policies are just not effective and especially when we talk about yeah. cyber security uh, i you know firmly believe that the, if the insurance market you know operates the same way then they are going to collapse in the coming years because it will just not be feasible for them to you know honor all those uh, cyber security claims that will be coming their way because right now the uh, you know challenges uh, i i heard you when you said that you know a lot of decision makers take decision not based on the data that's in front of them but just by their you know intuition or guts and all that but i think we live in a very different kind of climate right now we uh, the challenges that the digital global age has brought and you know on top of it the emerging technologies and so much competitiveness that is coming because of that it requires you to have that you know strategic data in front of you for example you could be in a, you know any industry energy industry or biotechnology or pharmaceutical industry there are so many things coming so many innovations coming your way that could you know put your business or your products or services you know, out of, you know, market, because, you know, if there is a better way of doing things, if there is a more effective way or more, you know, environmentally friendly way, then it is, that is going to survive and succeed. So you do need that strategic data in front of you. So for the decision makers who have done business in a different manner all these years, I think they will have to slowly adapt to this new environment because this is entirely very transformative and very revolutionary where so many new innovations are coming across industries and even if you are working let's say in the energy industry your competition could come from entirely different industry or sector not from even within your industry or sector so it's a very different complex challenge and as far as cyber security goes i mean yeah there are a lot of firms or a lot of you know small organizations or people they may think that they don't have to invest in you know cyber security because it's just not required for what kind of work they are doing but there is a third party you know attack uh, that is being used to you know get to the main you know uh, point uh, of you know or uh, interest where you know they are not secured but these even though this main organization is secured but because their vendor suppliers are not secured they are directly impacted by that so everything is interconnected and interdependent so the model that people decision makers were using so far is not going to be valid or useful in the you know current environment the cyber security brings cyber space brings entirely different kind of challenges so i think everything needs will have to change the insurance model will have to change the security model has to change economic model has to change how we measure things because 
another point Omar, I wanted to talk to you is about when nation states are involved in the cyber hacking, when the hacking activities, when nation state itself is a sponsor, how, I mean, it's a very complex set of challenges. How do we understand the economic impact that they bring? Because there's a lot of information that would be completely, you know, uh, hidden by the nation states, you know, how things are done and how they're hacking. And there is, I mean, there are some talks going on that there are many nations uh, involved into, you know, sponsoring this kind of activities. So how do we do this kind of challenges? It is, it is, it is very difficult and a very complex problem which you're talking about. And I agree with you that, you know, we need some of these new models which are coming in. But uh, another thing which has become a challenge today is the, the time frame which is given actually for taking the decision. I met a, a chairman of a bank who is now in based of chairman of a bank in, in the King's Bank in Qatar. Earlier he was the chairman for uh, the BNP Paribas in India. And this gentleman met me at a conference in Bordeaux where I was invited and honored by the Centimillion and the University of Bordeaux. And he was telling me that, you see, when we have to take decisions, when I was in India, he says, that, you know, the industrialist wants money from me. He wants. Now, if the, I give it to my people to assess the industrialist, the project, and so on and so forth, uh, they may take a few hours of a day or so, given their models and systems which they have in hand, getting that information and processing it and giving it out. But uh, I have only a few seconds to take a decision. He's sitting with four bankers and he wants to, that particular loan to be processed. And he wants to hear the chairman say, yes, I'm giving the loan or I'm not giving the loan. He doesn't want him to take time. Now, given that fractional moment, it is not possible for any bank or financial institution, as a matter of fact, to actually churn out data, which they don't have in their position, and give out appropriate results. And today, there are so many avenues. Today, a businessman can actually take money from Hong Kong, from China, from a US bank, from, from an internet bank-based uh, system, uh, from this Alibaba, which is coming up. You know, so you you don't give up money, there's another person who is ready to give you money. There are n number of avenues which are there. Now, the decision-making time has got reduced so much that if the bankers don't act safely, they lose business. If, if innovators or business providers don't act safely, they lose business. Now, this is where we are challenged that, uh, you know, whatever model we may have, we will have to feed it with certain data. And there would be a time lag. Uh, you know, can we take that risk? Now, we have had some bankers, I, I serve on some committees, and they, you know, we have had this discussion that, fine, you may give a yes, but you may reassess later and find out that how fine-tuned you can do to that. And that's where some of these models will help, where you have given a decision, but then you reassess your decision to some extent to reduce or you know take that risk or not. Yes. And because the business moves on a basis of word, it is a word of mouth business, which even takes place today, you know, despite all kinds of folks and everybody coming into play, uh, you know, uh, it is uh, a word of mouth business. Who is who and who is who not? I, I always say it is a world of knowns and not for unknowns. And this is where it makes a huge difference, you know, when you calibrate some of these things and take decisions on them. So these models which you are talking about, the new models and the modification of models, whether they are based on risk or other bases, is very critical. And I think we need to have them developed. Unfortunately, in the field of finance, in the field of social sciences, in the field of behavioral finance, in the field of uh, marketing, all fields, 
there are researchers who are working on creating some of these models and many of them are now being you know, tuned with cyber based systems because today we do not see anything without cyber. A personal life has a large impact of cyber space which is there. Today more than even personal space or individual space we talk about cyber space which is there even in individuals life today and I'm talking not from affluent people or rich people it is a common man who actually lives in the cyber world today than in the real world and this is where uh, you know the complexity of taking that decision you know I remember reading in the magazine where a girl said I don't mind anyone taking any kind of a photograph of mine whether I'm on a beach or anywhere but when it, someone posts this on the Facebook and they recognize my face and it goes there and my employer sees it or my prospective employer sees it he develops a random judgment yes. and this is what brings her a risk she says I'm not afraid of anything happening I'm comfortable but then when it happens in this way it influences my future my prospect my job my security and that is what is being put at risk now this is where the cyber world has brought these kind of risks. So to think about a model, to think about not uh, getting influenced by it is something which you know you are dipped in the way. I have heard people who say, oh, I'm not on the Facebook, I'm not on the LinkedIn, I'm not on this, I'm not active on cyberbase. But even then, without their knowing, their information would be displayed in the cyberspace, which they are not aware of. So they're actually closing a window to themselves of opening up their own mind of knowing what is happening. But they are in that space. They are existing in that world. And that's where, uh, you know, this timeline, which is there, A, to be done or not to be done, uh, you know, is a very complicated question, which uh, earlier we had time to answer. We used to get months and years, then it reduced to a few days, then it reduced to a few hours. Today, it is a matter of few seconds to take a decision or not to take a call. And this is what the time uh, poses a challenge. Will the world change around? In my opinion, the world will still exist, whether you or me exist or not, uh, whether it exists or not. So that, we think that very true, very true. Think that so, so, we need to take that call. And I think uh, these models can help us uh, reassess, bring a check mechanism, uh, question our own value judgments, our judgment systems. But uh, to think that we can base our judgments today on these models is uh, too uh, too insecure because the time lag or the time system frame we have to take that decision is very limited today. Yes, yes, you are absolutely right. So th this is the last question, Aman. I mean, there is so much to talk. This uh, field is uh, so fascinating because to me, it's like unless decision makers understand the economic impact of cybersecurity or insecurity, their decisions, their initiatives, their judgment calls, uh, you know, there's so much at risk right now and there's so much to discuss in this. But because, you know, we like to keep the risk round up to one hour uh, so that, you know, people can uh, grasp the knowledge, you know, and without getting too tired of, you know, listening to the same topic. So we would keep this session to, you know, an hour or so for the sake of the viewers. But there is this one question that I would like to ask you before we conclude is that, you said that you know now we have only like few seconds to take the decision whether to give the loan or whether to give that investment. So there are a lot of gaps because we don't have the proper tools that could assist us to take to help us reach that right decision. And obviously, you know, there is uh, all that uh, possibilities that you know someone can you know go and uh, 
understand that yes these are the gaps so let's build let's innovate and let's come up with some proper tools that could help this industry take proper decisions but at the same time as an economist what do you think every day that i wish these tools were there that would help my job make it much easier so that i can give a proper you know evaluation about the economy you know not only india but you know all these nations that you advise that you know i can do a better job of giving them advice about the economy based on the cyber security challenges or cyber insecurity in the cyber space and how it's going to impact the geo space in this you know integrated interdependent digital global so what are those you tools that you wish were there or wish that someone would you know develop or innovate i think the only one answer i can say to this is that you know um, uh, given the fact that we live in a cyber space a cyber world today and everything is interlocked with the cyber systems uh, everything is at risk so we are in a 100% risk zone and when we calibrate and act in accordance to the fact that 100% risk everything our profits our existence is at 100% risk uh, that's the only when can we uh, innovate and move forward and that is the only way to do it earlier we calibrated 30% risk 40% risk and so and so forth basel not we need to look at money no accounts everything can be taken away a person a thief who catches me on the street and says put your credit card in an atm machine he can only put out to the extent it is allowed on the credit card someone who tasks me to sign a check uh, forces me to sign a check on a gunpoint can only take much that much amount of money which is there in my account but today with that cyber security someone can be sitting somewhere in an unknown city on the seaport in a boat and actually can take away all my money from all my accounts so everything today is at risk given the cyber space systems which are existing today now given that i think when we start thinking that 100% risk that tomorrow my business may not exist what should i do then tomorrow this money in my account may not be there so how should i take care of this money invest it put it in different systems which are very much in my control in my place whether liquid or illiquid now this approach needs to be adopted where you say everything can just vanish at a click of a button tomorrow so keeping that attitude in mind we need to take decisions we need to take we uh, need to do evaluation is it to going ahead with the product or not going ahead with the product securing it or not securing it insuring it or not insuring it uh, we need to keep in mind that this may not be there tomorrow i have patented a product it might have taken me 6 months 1 year 2 years to patent it tomorrow before you can even think about it someone in some part of the world may have launched this product already you know uh, while you were in the process someone has already launched it now this is where this risk of this so you must need to look at an environment when you look at risk as 100% consider that as a 100% uh, devaluation to take place at the next moment that's only that thing those steps you should take to build a new structure a new place to secure ourselves or secure your position what you need to do whether it's in business or in, in finances or any other markets uh, it needs to be taken and i think that is the only way uh, we can deal with uh, cyber based uh, security and risks which are based uh, put forward through cyber security yes so with that thought 
with that thought, Raman, that we need to put together that, you know, framework, that foundation or that, you know, structure that could help us manage all these risks that the cyberspace brings us. So we are going to conclude with that. And we hope that, you know, our dialogues like this brings us some ideas that, you know, whoever, the viewers that are listening all across nations, that they would, you know, come up with some, you know, new ways of doing things that could help manage the, you know, complex security challenges that could help the economists, you know, come up with better models or better tools and technologies that would help them, you know, do their job more efficiently, more effectively. And we hope that, you know, someone uh, out there can do that. And Aman, we really appreciate your time and, you know, your valued input. And this is such a complex field and you have, you know, made uh, such an amazing effort to explain things in a very, you know, simpler manner so that, you know, people can understand that. And I think that's what decision makers need, you know, that they can understand the complex challenges in a very simple manner. And uh, um, we appreciate all the effort and uh, initiative that you took in that. And we hope that we, you would, you know, come on Risk Roundup again to continue this dialogue so that we can, you know, help manage the complex security challenges, you know, collectively and uh, uh, better in and we can come up with some good ideas. So thank you so much, Aman. I really appreciate you. uh, your joining Risk Roundup. It was an honor having you on Risk Roundup. So that's it for today, friends. Uh, for uh, knowing, you know, who's going to be on the next Risk Roundup, please go to riskgroupllc.com and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.